and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, Naomi, and this is Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today we are excited to be joined by uh, Darla Rompho. She is the president and CEO of the Children's Scholarship Fund, uh, which is a nonprofit dedicated to providing partial scholarships for low-income kids in grades K to 8 to go to private school. Welcome, Darla, to the show for the second time. We really appreciate your coming on. Thank you so much for having me. So, Darla, I wanted to start by kind of asking you a little bit about education savings accounts, which have been in the news a lot lately. I mean, post-pandemic, really the opportunities for school choice, um, for more freedom for parents in education have started opening up. Um, but education savings accounts have been something that I know you've been following closely and Children's Scholarship Fund has been working on. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the news in this area and kind of uh, where you see um, the potential for this going? Well, first of all, this is now the most popular vehicle in terms of the the legislation that's being introduced at the state level. It's been passed in a number of states in the past year. Um, I think of something like 11 states now might have education savings accounts. We actually run one in New Hampshire. It's mm -hmm. called the Education Freedom Account. And just in, in case there happens to be anybody who's listening who doesn't know exactly what these are and how they dip, they're different from some of the other vehicles, it, in New Hampshire, it the portion of the state funding, and that's how they're working in all the states, I believe, some of them you have to raise tax credit dollars to fund the ESA, but generally speaking, the portion of the state funding that's spent on a child's education is deposited into an account that can be spent directly by the parents with oversight in accordance with what the law provides. Um, in the case of New Hampshire, CSF is a nonprofit that's operating these education savings accounts, and we actually go in and make sure that parents are spending them for um, the right kinds of things, but we have like 1100 providers now that are approved to provide services. And it's wow. not just school tuition, it's for all kinds of things, for tutoring and for supplies. And, and it allows parents to become much more active and motivated in, and responsive to what they see their children need in terms of completing their education. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a really, it's way different than just paying for tuition. That's a nice thing to be able to, to fund your child's tuition to go to a private school. But this is but this is probably one of the things that's fueling homeschooling. But as there there was an article recently, um, I, I don't know if you, you saw it or or it's been talked the about. Washington. Yeah, the Washington Post. And they wrote about it very honestly too. And it's it's talking about the the upsurge in homeschooling. And I think in addition to just the raw data and seeing that homeschooling's increased so much, I think it says a lot about this whole movement that parents are waking up and coming alive and saying that they want to take charge of their children's education. And education savings accounts are a perfect vehicle for doing that. Now, most states actually, they're universal now. Um, New Hampshire happens to be one that's up to 350% of poverty, but that that takes in a huge swath and a you know, big percentage of the of the families actually qualifying under the 350%. Florida's the biggest one. Um, and about half of the kids in the country that are experiencing publicly funded choice are in Florida, but there it's happening everywhere. And I think the number of kids qualified now for some kind of publicly funded choice is upwards and over 4 million, not nearly that many yet that are taking it up, but the, the numbers are definitely increasing and exploding. 
Yeah, yeah. I see 4,200 kids in New Hampshire uh, and New yeah. Hampshire doesn't have a lot of people. So that's a, that's a pretty big chunk. And we're actually up to, I think whenever you, if you saw that number, I think we might be up to 4,500 now. Wow. ESAs, as you say, are additive. They're not, uh, they're additive to what uh, someone would uh, have access to even with their traditional school. Program. Well, you, if right? you're in a public school, if you're in a public school, you can't get an ESA in New Hampshire and most places. I mean, it is you either go to your 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 government run school or you take this option to you can use it in New Hampshire to go to an out of district school. So if you have to pay, sometimes you have to pay if you go to something other than your zone school. But it's not it's not in addition to um, I'm going to do do it for things besides my public school. But the tutoring, how, how does that work? Um, well, so that's for kids. Like if you're a child that's going to a private school and you want, you think you need tutoring on top of it, or if you want to um, put that, put that into your homeschooling curriculum that you want to hire an outside tutor, that that's what that, that's what that mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so for the local school system, there's no incremental cost. Is that part of why it's more no, popular fact, legislatively yeah in some places it's actually they still get money some of they're, they're still getting the local funding for the child so actually they should come out ahead because they should have more per head for the kids that are in still still in the school i mean it's not and most of these bills are being designed with great sensitivity to the fact that nobody can say you're taking money away from the government-run schools you're i mean the thing that's taking money away is that even in places like new york People are not, they're not, they're somehow the droves of kids are leaving the public schools. And it's not necessarily that they're going into a publicly funded choice program. It's happening in places that don't even have publicly funded choice. Right. Well, so, some of them are leaving the state. Some of them are leaving the state, correct? Hmm. Roman is kind of suffering all over the place. And now yes. you know, the homeschooling thing is a huge phenomenon. And that is also not just happening in states that have publicly funded choice. People are funding this themselves. So that's really says a lot about the dissatisfaction level and the awareness level on the parents, which in order for any of this to succeed over time, it's going to have to happen from the bottom up and awareness, um, just like any other problem that requires solutions in this country. If you don't have an understanding at the grassroots level of what is happening and the most fundamental places in the family with the, between a parent and a child, so it always seems like putting power in the hands of parents is the the right thing to do, and yet there's still opposition. So who opposes ESAs, vouchers, and what's the rationale for the opposition? Well, it's kind of the same old crowd, you know, it's the teachers' unions, they, and they come back with the same tired old arguments. They're not even new arguments. They, they still say you're creaming and you're taking money away from the government-run schools, and there's no accountability, or there's, and it's, it's like, really, could there be any lower accountability than what the government-run schools have? Because they continue to get money, and even though they educate right. so poorly, and the testing, the standards just go down and down and down. So it's it's the same old argument. You know, one of the things that's interesting to me is when I, um, obviously, you know, your supporters agree with what your fundamental premise is. And I, I've been saying since I started this job 25 years ago, that parents are the first educators of their children. And most people uniformly that was something people agreed with but you even you know you even heard at the highest levels in our country during covid and after that you know 
even I think our president said, when you have the children, they're yours to the teachers. I mean, that's, that's a really, but that's a statement. It doesn't sit well. It didn't work well in the governor's race in Virginia. When parents hear that sort of thing, there's something just natural and instinctive that rises up in them to say, that's not right. Yeah. These are my children. So the uh, the Washington Post reported a, a 13% increase in homeschooling from the 2017-18 school year to 2019-2020, um, and that seems to to keep going up. So these the education savings account is sort of subsidizing these financially. How much of that do you think is a factor in sort of holding parents back from doing homeschooling, that they either can't afford to do it um, because they need to hire some outside people or because they sort of reduce the income uh, to a particular family um, when one of the parents has to be engaged in this? Oh, I'm sure it's a barrier. But again, like I said, the the numbers are exploding in parts of the country that don't even have the subsidies. So would there always be more if you could get you know, some access to some funding for it. Yeah, the answer to that is probably right. But I'll give you another example. So I was approached by somebody from Massachusetts who said, we'd like to start a scholarship program in Massachusetts because they have 13 churches that have figured out they're not using the space during the week and that they could be used. They've been approached by families who'd like to do, you know, um, learning pods or do something do something during the week to educate their children in something other than their zone school. And they're actually 13 of these schools have started without, there's no, there's no public funding in Massachusetts and they're right. growing by leaps and bounds because hmm. yeah, I thought, and you know what, eight of them are immigrant churches. How about that? Hmm. I find that fascinating. And I, I, you get, you, you're hearing about these kinds of stories about people just doing this all over the country. And interestingly enough, you know, for a long time, 40 years ago, the homeschooling laws in this country were really, really strict. Um, and a lot of work was done to make them less stringent, less so you were more able to do it. And so a lot of people have figured out that this is a way to get a, they can do it a pod and do it homeschooling. They can do a micro school and do it through homeschooling. So this is happening. I mean, is it, you know, there's 60 million school age children in this country and you know, 80% of them are still educated in the government run schools. But when I started, it was 90%. So, yeah. and when you, when you look at that and the decline in the numbers of kids that have been, edu- are being educated in Catholic schools, there's something happening here. Yeah. Even in the black community, I mean, the census bureau uh, released data, I think it was last year where pre COVID the percent of black uh, families interested in homeschooling was about 3.3%, pretty low number and now that number is close to 16 percent so i don't know if you're seeing that across the board but certainly within the black community um, it's an option that is now on the table for real definitely i think you see that all across the board people are interested in finding more out more about it and and answer you know your earlier question Ian. one of the the groups of people that are not standing in the way of school choice are parents it's over 70% of parents are for it. Majority of Democrats are for it. And uh, Republicans are over 80%. But I, I think it's even over 60% with Democrats are for choice. When, and and it's, it's, it's explained to them exactly as we're talking about it, so that they know that it's empowering parents with actual dollars to go to pick the place where their child goes to school. So it's definitely not you know, Democrats, Republicans, or parents that are standing in the way of school choice as a big block. 
So you mentioned briefly Catholic schools. Children's Scholarship Fund has obviously done an enormous amount of work with Catholic schools over the years. Um, they have sort of, you know, seen a lot of their enrollment decline. Can you sort of talk about the trends there and whether you see, um, you know, more hope for these schools, you know, with the ESAs or um, or whether they're sort of being replaced by these other alternatives? Well, I would point to a study done by Step Up for Students where it shows actual growth in, in Catholic school enrollment in Florida, which is a state that has a very robust school choice program. So I would say that if you can, with robust school choice, like the money is a barrier, but with robust school choice, you can actually see these numbers turn around, reverse themselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you worry? I, I know there's been a sort of growth some places. I mean, one one obvious issue is sort of once these schools close, it's very hard to um, you know, to sort of rebuild them. What is the, you know, are, are they are they hanging on? How are how are Catholic schools doing financially? And and you know, can they can they wait for these changes to happen? Well, I think in a state like New York, having ever ever hoping that there's going to be a change in the law that puts publicly funded dollars into the hands of a family is probably a long shot. I am also hopeful about something called ECA, the Educational um, Choice for Children Act, which is something that's before Congress and that has, you know, the idea was to keep working on this even during a Democratic administration and when you have a Democratic Senate so that if we things turn around, that you will have legislation in place that can be acted on. And that is a piece of legislation that would help up to 2 million kids exercise choice, even in states, blue states that don't have choice, which could be tremendously beneficial. And that help could be on the way sooner rather than later. I mean, I think there are things within the Catholic community that they can do to, to make themselves more appealing. If, if, if 13 churches in Massachusetts can start schools, that there must be some appetite for it. And I think now is the time for the Catholic Church and the Catholic community to stand even stronger on what makes them unique. It's not enough just to be a charter school that charges tuition. Like you really have to emphasize the faith part of this. And you have to show that you're educating the, the whole person, body, mind, and soul. That is your, you, that's your special sauce. And I thought during COVID, you had seen a bump uh, positively in terms of enrollment, both because of the reasons you're saying that a lot of Catholic schools were values-based, and, and mm -hmm. in some ways that was a great defense against a lot of the sort of critical race theory and other ideologies that they were seeing in more traditional schools. You know, Catholic schools weren't adopting this, so they had their own sense of values, and they also stayed open during, during very much important of COVID. Things. So, yeah, I mean, one yeah, of the so, things Catholic schools have working against them, though, is because they are in a lot of urban centers. I mean, that's where the, the, a lot of the concentration of the schools are. And that's those centers are hurting all, you know, they're bleeding all kinds of kids. So the fact that they can even maintain enrollment in a place like New York City is is a is a wonderful and amazing thing. I mean, I'm amazed that we have such high CSF with the scholarships that we give families. Again, I think it must be, you know, financial help does make a difference. We have 85% retention year over year, which that's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. When you look at when you look at what's happening with people moving out and things changing and even some schools closing, um, it's it's amazing that kids stick stick with it. And I, I would I thought this year might be a year where that would go down, but I think. I think the financial help means a lot. And I think when families do find a school that's working, they will make they will make decisions for the rest of their family about where to live 
and how to live around that where they found a school. And I don't know, Ian, you probably found that to be true in your work as an educator too. Oh no, absolutely. But you know, there there's definitely uh, a competitive advantage. I, I, we you know we run a virtues based high school. There's no question that parents are increasingly looking for that kind of education. Uh, for their kids, especially if they perceive that their schools are now imposing different kinds of values or different kinds of ideologies, whether it be transgender issues or race-based issues. And so I, I think you're right. And, and you've got to really emphasize the competitive advantage that you organically have. What, one of the uh, one of the interesting things that Washington Post produced a map um, of the homeschooling uh, increases and the places where the biggest increases seem to be happening were the places uh, that are very blue, um, the places that experience probably the most severe uh, school shutdowns. Um, New York, D.C. and California are all kind of one among the sort of most concentrated increases in homeschooling. Um, do you think that there's going to be kind of any any sort of response? or any kind of notice on the part of leadership in these states, um, the backlash that they're receiving to their policies, both, you know, both the, you know, school shutdowns and all, but also kind of what, what Ian's talking about in terms of um, what they're actually teaching or not teaching in these schools. You know, that would be a, that would be a hopeful thing to have that they would have a response, but there doesn't seem to be a response to the fact that their citizens are moving out of their states in droves. Yeah. Not, the policies aren't changing for that. So I think, you know, the fact that a few more kids are home, parents are homeschooling, at least they're still staying there. Yeah. I mean, at least they didn't lose them as a taxpayer. They stuck around, at least they're paying their taxes. So, you know, I, most... I was trying I was trying to take a cue from Ian and look on the bright side. But yeah, yeah. I'm going to give up. Well, on the that. bright side back the... to pessimistic, Naomi. <laughs> <laughs> the bright side is that they, they kept the families in in New York and D.C. and California. So that's that's their bright side. You know, it's going to have to happen in such volumes that it's going to have to be way bigger than that number. Yeah. I mean, maybe when we get to the fact that 40% of people have left the, the government-run systems, maybe that will catch somebody's attention. You know, <laughs> then they'll probably start trying to regulate the heck out of private schools and out of homeschooling again. I mean, the, the response won't be that they actually try to do anything to make the schools better. They'll probably try to regulate the things. Right, crack down. Do. Yeah, probably try to crack down on it. So I think that's why a lot of people want to be doing things kind of under the radar and mm. not calling a lot of their attention to themselves. They're just they're just doing it. You know, I'm in a district where only seven percent of kids graduate from high school ready for college. How does how do organizations like CSF grow? Like, you know, are you unique? How do people in our audience who want to help build create more opportunities? for actual choice, especially if you're in a place where you don't have access to ESAs? Like, how do, how do you support that kind of um, innovation in the education space? Well, it has to be done if, if there's not a program like there is in New Hampshire, where we've grown from zero kids two years ago to 4,500 kids today, then you have to look at other ways. And that's, you have to raise philanthropic dollars. But actually, there's some excitement around doing that right now. I mean, I, and, and there are people that are, like I said, people are just doing it. And it doesn't take that much money. I mean, I was talking to someone today about how much you can really, if you can educate a child in a Catholic school in Boston, and do a 
the cost to educate can be around six thousand dollars in, in elementary school. I mean, that's and that's a good education. That's pretty mm-hmm. astonishing. It doesn't take that much money for for a philanthropist to support that effort, mm-hmm. in relative to what we're spending everywhere sure. else. And I and I also would I'd make the argument. You know, I, there's there's a lot of interest in a lot of different states right now that don't have that don't have publicly funded choice, but they want to start a scholarship granting organization. I know of at least three because they think that having the those proof points of seeing what this does, having the faces that can come and testify, all of those all of the things that CSF has been doing, and all the all the states around the country where we have scholarship granting organizations. In fact. Yeah, I think something like 16 of the states where we had scholarship granting organizations now have publicly funded choice. And a lot of the, the time, the people that went to testify were beneficiaries of our program. So you can invest in these programs that then become publicly funded choice. And that, yeah. that's no a ball. good investment. That's a good, it's a, it, it starts to have reality. And like John Walton always said too, Hey, if it doesn't happen, if we don't get publicly funded choice, I've helped some number of kids have a better education and who knows what they go on to do. I mean, we've yep. helped over 200,000 kids and we've given away over a billion dollars. And, you know, we have not that college graduation is everything, but our kids graduate from college at four times the rate of kids in their peer group. You know, they we know the, the stories of what they go on to do and they graduate in like four or six years. They're not taking, you know, they actually go and do it. Um, So these, these programs make a difference. And, you know, I think if we ever lose, you know, the the sight of the fact that if you might, if you save a life, you save the world. If you ever lose the value of what one human being, the person next to you, what that means. And that's where, that's how we become good people is that we look at every person that's beside us, every person that we can help and do what we can where we are. You know, I was at a retreat recently and he said, don't get don't get caught up in the having to do this big thing because you, you'll probably fail at the big thing. And you'll you'll be have this little voice inside you that says you're never going to get that done. But start with the little things, you know, do the do the one right thing. If you, there's somebody you can help get a better education, if you can start a small scholarship granting organization, if you can help 100 kids, if you can help 50 kids, if you help 10 kids. I mean, that's a big deal. And that multiplies. One church, one church in Massachusetts starts a school. Another one sees it and they see that they can do it. And that's the other thing we see all the time too. The best advertisement is somebody that's doing it because somebody else sees them doing it and realizes I can do it too. Yep. All right. Well, I think that's a, that's a great note for us to end on. Thank you so much, Darla, for joining us for this episode. Are you kidding me? Uh, You can get our episodes on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, So with that, I am Naomi Schaefer Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Darla, thank you. Thank you for what you guys do. Your voices of truth. And I, I appreciate it so much. 